nine. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel. And Diane Duvernay, your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9, and streaming at AM 1290, kzsb.com. We're repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loans programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and in Montecito's Upper Village. And Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with a personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. So Neil, are you bracing yourself for yet another Pineapple Express tomorrow? I am so bracing. I have, as you know, three dogs. So I walk them uh, four times already today. So I don't have to walk them tomorrow. Is that right? Is that Does that work that way for the dogs? They they don't have to get walked the, the day after if you walk them a lot? You are the dog person. You know, I'm going to leave that up to you. See how that works out for you. <laughs> so anyways, we have with us today, Peter Rupert, again, as our guest. He is the executive director of the Economic Forecast Project and Associate Director of the Laboratory for Aggregate Economics and Finance, as well as a professor at UCSB in the Economics Department. So Peter, thanks again so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me again. Um, Diane, I think we could in, we could uh, step up that introduction and say, not only has Peter been a frequent flyer on our show, he's been clearly the best guest over the last six years. <laughs> so there's there's some pressure on you, Peter. Um, you said so that the, to all the guests, Neil. Yeah. So <laughs> the first the first article is from the Wall Street Journal, and it begins by saying investors are currently pricing a 60% probability that the Fed will raise rates by 25 basis points to, on Wednesday, with the remainder betting on no change. Some industry executives now say that central banks should prioritize financial stability over inflation. Uh, consumer prices rose at a 6% annual rate in February, nearly three times the central bank's target. While the banking woes will certainly command attention, we believe that it is not systemic, but more of a liquidity uh, issue that the Fed uh, can control with its lending facility. So, you know, here's the, the debate. Uh, and the question is whether the Fed will uh, change its policy based on the uh, possibility of contagion and the financial problems of uh, the bank bankruptcies, or whether they'll stick to, or at least modify somewhat, but stick to their uh, intention of having a priority of inflation reduction. Well, given that we have a doctor of economics, as well as a 12-year veteran as a senior economic advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. Peter, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, you know, the Federal Reserve is known as a lender of last resort. And, you know, in, in these times, that's exactly kind of what they're supposed to do. You know, should they, you know, should they change their, you know, the structure of what they look at? I think not. I mean, I think that you know, they have enough to look at right now. And if we start adding things about um, uh, duration mismatch, financial conditions, you know, I think that's just going to be too much. I, I really think that they kind of have a lot on their plate with looking just inflation and, and employment. And, you know, being lender of last resort, you know, kind of gets around the fact that, uh, that, that the banking system could collapse. I mean, the Fed is there uh, and lends to banks if need be. You know, the, the thing that I find somewhat uh, disturbing is that uh, the problems that uh, these banks have uh, faced the last two weeks were not only clearly known, but in some cases, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, the Fed had already begun to put some pressure on them to change their ways. So when you talk about the mismatch between their assets and their liabilities and the and the, and the type of homogeneous uh, depositors they had, 
there's no secret here. This this is sort of like, are you kidding me? Why? How did these banks? Uh, how would they run in the first place? Uh, and so it's 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 a real big question. No, no, they were. Yeah, they've been there for a while. I mean, it's it's true that they have basically um, back in Q3, it was kind of well known that they were a very risky bank. You're right, Neil. This wasn't something new. You know, secondly, I'm, you know, I'm not sure, you know, how much people, they know this, but, you know, the idea was, you know, let's be a bank. Chase was offering something like 0.01% to depositors. Silicon Valley Bank was like, you know, let's offer a little bit more than that. So they got tons and tons of deposits. Now, you know, a small percentage increase and you get, you know, a billion dollars, that starts to add up to real money, right? That, that, that difference that they were, they were giving to people. And so... And then what they did was they went out and 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 bought long-term treasuries. So anybody who takes a first year class in, you know, finance or anything knows that if interest rates go back to their normal level, the value of those assets are going to decline. And, you know, a lot of things that people have said is, you know, who should be monitoring the banks, right? Is it necessarily left up to the regulators or, you know, do these sophisticated you know, depositors, financial geniuses, should they be the ones monitoring the banks? Now, it turns out sophisticated investors there putting their money in the bank, what it mean to be sophisticated is when they see the bank starting to fail or not look like it can cover its payments, they pull out first. There's an interesting article that is my second article that sort of touches on this. And it said that before Silicon Valley Bank went under, uh, they required all of their borrowers to keep 100% of their cash in their bank. Uh, so even if a uh, depositor of Silicon Valley uh, was a little bit concerned, they had a lot of pressure if they were looking at Silicon Valley as a funder. And the bridge bank that the Fed uh, has appointed to uh, take over Silicon Valley has just eased those rules and um, has said that uh, borrowers only have to keep 50% of their money in the bank. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting is that uh, regulators permit banks to hold their bonds at amortized cost and, and not to mark to market. And so uh, if you look at some of the financial reports of these banks, they're not, they don't have footnotes. I mean, you can get the 10K and if they're public, but some of these banks, it's it's really, unless you're really sophisticated, it's hard to see the uh, difference between market and amortized cost of these bond portfolios. And that's something that would be easy for regulators to uh, insist upon a more transparent uh, yeah. balance sheet. I think that's exactly right. I, I think, I mean, a, a recent paper just came out and you know basically showed that you know, if you look at a bunch of the big banks, I mean, Silicon Valley Bank was by far an outlier. If you adjusted for um, mark to market, they basically had zero. They had nothing. The value of those, you know, it was gone where everybody else did not. And so it was obvious. There's no doubt about that. How the regulators, you know, mishandled that, you know, if they did, you know, I don't know. But you're right. That that, that could certainly be, be calculated pretty easily. But, you know, are, are you going to go do that, Neil? Are you going to go to every bank and sort of look and and, and see what those are? I, I, it, you know, so it's not going to be up to us, I don't think, right? Um, well, I actually have the time now, but I don't have the inclination. When I had, when I, when I, when it mattered to me, you know, I, I didn't do it. Here's an article in the New York Times, which is really interesting, and this is about Signature Bank. Uh, Barney Frank from the famous. Uh, uh, That's from my. All right, Massachusetts. Well, the, yes, he used the former congressman, but uh, the author, co-author of the you know Frank Dodd bill that supposedly made banks safer, uh, was on the board of Signature, and he recently, uh, actually for the last two years, has been fighting to ease rules for smaller community banks, and it you know it's just you know talk about the capitalistic system. You know, here's a guy that has always looked at the interest of the little guy. And here he is on the board of all banks signature, you know, pushing his former uh, co-legislators to actually uh, loosen regulations. Right. 
Um, the, the next article, and probably the last one we'll have time for, um, is an interesting article. It's a little bit off the subject, but it's really important as well. And that is Tiger Global, which is a huge private equity firm, uh, just wrote down 33% of its assets. And um, what's interesting about this is they were forced to uh, mark down their assets that they were holding based upon because they're private equity deals, there's no public market, that they were relying on the uh, partnerships that they were investing in to 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 mark to to market their their assets. And uh, when they took a look at what the valuations were for their non-marketable assets compared to similar assets that are public, they realized that the partners of their investment were over uh, estimating the value and therefore they had to take a huge write-off. And this is a real significant problem that's that's hidden away. So much new money is being put into private investments where uh, the values aren't determined by trades, they're determined by the general partner making an estimate. And when you do that, even if they're honest, there is uh, really no way you can have confidence that what they're telling you is right. So when you look at the performance of a private equity and somebody is at a cocktail party and said, well, you lost money in the stock market, I did very well with my private equity investments. Uh, yeah, because the values were determined by the general partner. Right. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. For prospective home buyers, one of the most important steps of the loan process is getting clear and honest information from someone who will speak plainly and truthfully about loan programs and options. I'm Kelly Marsh, Vice President, California, of Cornerstone Home Lending, where our highly skilled and experienced team takes great pride in helping clients obtain home financing with honest, knowledgeable, fast, friendly, and efficient service. As a Santa Barbara native who has spent the past 20 years in the mortgage industry and has closed over 4,000 loans, I'd appreciate the opportunity to earn your business and invite you to visit the Kelly Marsh team.com or call my office at 805-563-1100 to learn more about how Cornerstone Home Lending can help you determine the best way to manage mortgage debt to achieve a more stable financial future. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. California Residential Mortgage Lending Act license number 41DB072220. California Financial Lending Law license number 60DB072528. Loan originator NMLS number 245822. Not a commitment to loan. Equal housing opportunity. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So if you're just joining us, we have a real treat today. We have Dr. Peter Rubert, who's a professor of economics out at UCSB, as well as the executive director of the Economic Forecast Project and the associate director of the Laboratory for Aggregate Economics and Finance. And I think why we love having Peter on the show is he's he has this real knack of being able to be an economist, but break it down into into layman terms speak so we all understand what's going on out there. So Peter, thank you so much for being here with us. My pleasure. 
So tell us what you think the macro view of where we are in the current economy, because, you know, there's lots of conflicting data out there and it's oftentimes um, easy to get caught in the weeds. Yeah, lots of conflicting data, that's for sure. Um, you know, Neil started out talking a little bit about inflation, you know, from, a, from an article. Uh, you know, one thing I've been looking at is, you know, at what duration do we look at inflation? I mean, for example, sometimes in the news, it's year over year inflation. Sometimes it's what happened last month. Both of those things are pretty bad measures in some sense. The, the year over year moves very slowly. Uh, it doesn't show sort of the, the latest stuff. Month to month is way too volatile, you know, and the fact that the month can go up a lot, but year over year go down. So I've I've taken to something like looking at the a three month average of inflation, things like that. So it's falling. So the Fed is kind of doing its work. You know, there's no doubt about that. The labor market's as strong as it's ever been. It's just, you know, it just keeps going and going and going. You know, there are more jobs available than unemployed people. You know, it's kind of the first time over the last few years is the first time in history where that's really happened. So the labor market's strong, wages are rising, um, you know, um, consumers are spending. And overall, I, I see that, you know, the, the leverage ratio in households and businesses is much lower than it was in 2008. So even if there is a little bit of a downturn, I think businesses and households are, are much better financially to, to be able to withstand it. Isn't it interesting that one of the Republican talking points today is how bad the economy is under Biden? And, you know, people, you know, whether you like Biden or whether you're a Democrat or not, on what basis are you saying the economy is bad? It's, yeah. just, it's just nuts. I agree. And so there's some uh, some people I know wrote this stuff. It's It's, you can find it. And it basically has to do with Forget about the words, forget about, you know, what people are saying. If you just look at the real underlying data in the U.S., uh, employment, you know, um, output per hour, you know, all these different real measures, um, then they take all those measures, put it together, and they look at the probability we're in a recession. Right now, that number is like 2%. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. The real data are speaking to that. Now, of course, you can decide what data you want to look at, but it, it's very—you'd be very hard pressed to say that the economy is is pretty strong. I feel like we've we've hit this this area in the in people's um, psyches where everyone thinks a recession's coming, right? I can't tell you whether it be you know grandma who's eighty-five years old or whether it be a twenty-something. I feel like everybody's talking about how we're headed into a recession and how scary these times are. Right. Now, when I look at the data, I see the only real data that points to the, to a potential recession going on is almost exactly a year ago, we had an inverted yield curve. Yeah. Aside from that, I can't see any data that's pointing to a recession. And so I ask you, how, how come we had this inverted yield curve and no recession on the horizon? I feel like everyone's you know waiting for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I that's a great question. I, I think, you know, if you look historically, you know, there are many, many times when the yield curve begins to invert. I mean, it doesn't go negative, but begins to invert um, and nothing happens. OK, um, that's number one. Number two, you know, let's not forget that the way it used to be, the, the Federal Reserve would just buy short term. So all they had in their portfolio before 2008 were short term treasuries, almost nothing else. After 2008, you know, as you know about Operation Twist and those kind of things, the Fed started buying long-term treasuries. So now the Fed actually has more long-term treasuries than short-term treasuries. So what does that mean? It means that it used to be that the Fed was kind of anchoring the short-term, but it was in that market, but the rest of the world was buying the long-term ones. And that would give us a lot of information about what people were thinking. Today, the Fed is in both of those. So it's not clear to me that the yield curve is as reliable. I haven't done any research on this. This is my guess. It's not quite as reliable because the Fed is also using the long term to, you know, for its policies where it did not do that before. So, you know, there are times when the yield curve inverts. We don't go into a recession. Um, I don't think there's any one statistic out there that basically tells us whether we are or we're not. And by the way, a lot of people ask me, you know, are we heading toward a recession? What I tell them is, look, if we're not in a recession, we're heading towards one. 
right? I mean, it's just that it's just that nobody's really good at at finding those turning points. That's the hard part, you know. And of course, at some point, you know, we're gonna, you know, the, you know, economy will will turn down uh, as it does very often. Luckily, the 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 times that happens is is getting farther and farther apart apart, and they're. And the recessions are much shorter than than historically. And so, given um, you recently published a paper on the labor markets during pandemics, tell us what um, interesting facts that you found through that research. Yeah, so that's you know that was basically about what we should do during a, a how the labor market should behave during a pandemic. And you know, given that we weren't prepared and we just shut everything down. Um, you know, it, it probably wasn't the right way if, if we had thought about it. And when I say, by the way, this is super interesting that, um, you know, President Bush, he talked in front of the National um, many, many years ago, the National Institute of Health. Uh, he spent an hour talking about what would happen if a pandemic occurs, and it's very likely. Um, Clinton did the same thing. And in November um, of 2019, Trump asked the Council of Economic Advisors to publish their report on a pandemic. It's a 40-page report talking about the economic damage of a pandemic should it occur. So we know about this can happen. We weren't really prepared to deal with it. So the idea is, you know, should you should you just shut everybody down? Or should you think about, you know, who should be home? Um, and you think about the, you know, this model that was developed back in the 1920s. Is really about how how such a uh, you know a pandemic can occur and, and who gets infected. So one of our policies was that if you get infected, we tax you. No, oh, like with yeah. money tax, you get taxed. Yeah. yeah, you get sick and taxed. Whoa, that's a double whammy. Right, double whammy. So don't get sick. But no, we make a joke about that. You know, in the paper, it's just there's lots of things you could do, but. You know, as I say, when I give this talk, um, you know, you're in the hospital, you know, lying in bed, and then the tax man comes and says, you know, we'd like, you know, $450 for you getting sick. Um, but it's an externality, right? Having COVID is an externality. That means that I could give it to you. And so the way we deal with externalities in economics, we tax the source. So, for example, a polluter, that's an externality. Then the best solution is to tax the polluter. So it just takes economics in the same way, and it's it's silly, I know. Don't get me wrong, but uh, but uh, you know that was just one of the mechanisms. You're listening to Money Talk on AM twelve ninety and FM ninety six point nine, and we'll be right back. When you're farming a vineyard, you have one hundred and eighty days to bring about a certain quality for the eventual wine. With a bank like American Riviera Bank, it's really comforting to have a partner that understands the agricultural landscape. Having people that communicate quickly with us, that are able to be flexible in how we're doing our business on a day-to-day -day basis has been a real strength in what we bring to our client base. You can bank on American Riviera. We do. American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. Sweet strawberry icing. You were strolling along in goodwill when just past that mid-century side table and denim jacket you spotted them, nestled in their display case. Miniature donut earrings. Oh, yes! Yes! Your favorite half-breakfast pastry, half-all-day dessert food made into your favorite form of ear candy. Oh, my. Those bejeweled sprinkles have satisfied some unknown hunger within you. Shh, do you smell that? That's the sugary scent of shopping success. For this is Goodwill. And with every item you buy, you fund local job training and more. So go forth. Bring home those donut earrings. And bring home so much good to your community. Goodwill. Bring good home. Brought to you by Goodwill and the Ad Council. I'm out of money and my children need food. Dial 211. I'm stressed out and I need someone to talk to. Dial 211. I'm a vet and I need a resource for supportive services. Dial 211. What's 211? 211 is a simple phone number and it's free. 
It's open 24 hours a day in multiple languages and it's confidential. There's a specialist who provides all kinds of information on health and human services available in your community. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And if you're just joining us, we have Dr. Peter Rupert, um, economic professor out at UCSB. And before the break, we were talking about his recently published paper about labor markets during the pandemic. And so when you when you were talking, you know, before the break about you know, taxing it through kind of, that's how economists look at the pandemic. What findings, if any, did you have in terms of what what piece of the labor market, could there have been anything done for the service industry? Or were there any segments within your paper that you think we could have maybe not negated completely, but lessened the burden of this pandemic on that, or that subsection of the population? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was age-based, you know, um, that was an issue we really didn't get into too much in that paper, but, you know, it, it wasn't the case that, you know, 25-year-olds or 30-year-olds were really suffering very much from the, from, from, from COVID, some did, of course, um, but, you know, should we just shut everything down or say, you know, if you're 65 and over, maybe you should stay home, you know, if you're 50 and over and have some uh, some preconditions, you know, maybe you should stay home. Um, you know, and this costs a lot of money, right? Putting everybody home. And, you know, so again, you know, so, so now we're at a, you know, $30 trillion worth of debt, um, after it's said and done, you know, not just from the pandemic, but great recession pandemic. Now we're going to be in more debt to some, due to some bailouts, you know, and, so, you know, those are things I think we just should be worried about a little bit more, uh, thinking about what could happen and what we could do about it. Do you have any um, knowledge about what happened in 1919 in terms of economic discourse? Because right now, economists and uh, business people are really on the forefront, besides doctors, of discussing the impact of COVID. I wonder if that happened in 1919. Were, were, were you know the people in charge thinking of the economy? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, but you know, that was a much much different case in the sense that it was really one of the only flus back then that killed young people. Most of the flu epidemics we see were killing older people, and so you know this that one was you know was particularly tragic. Um, but I think that, you know, we didn't have a lot of the tools we have today. I mean, I have to admit, the vaccines they came up with that fast, you know, that was pretty incredible. I mean, so can we put a vaccine for every type of virus? The answer is no, we don't know how they're going to mutate. So, you know, but we have to be kind of ready for it. And, you know, I think having a policy about once we know what's happening, do we shut everything down or, you know, how would we deal with it? So it's not quite so costly to, to the overall economy. And then when you when uh, on the break, we were talking a little bit about, you know, what are the other ramifications that we're not looking at right now that is going to play out in our economy over the years, whether it be education or whether it be poverty and how this pandemic has adversely affected them, perhaps more so than other socioeconomic classes? Yeah, I, I think that's that's super important. I, I know that there was a lot of excess deaths in, in the working age population that came from, you know, being laid off and lots of it had to do with, you know, drugs and, you know, all, you know, many different issues um, that tended to affect low income and minorities a little bit more than than others. And, you know, those kinds of effects are, are, are deep. And secondly, you know, the children of, you know, two working families that, that weren't able to get the education they needed early on. You know, we've learned in economics that that early childhood education is the most important thing, you, you know, you can really do. So if young kids age six, seven, eight, ten are missing out on a couple of years, which I think many of them did during the pandemic, that has huge ramifications over the lifetime. And just one little example that's not that, but it turns out that if you graduate college and enter the job market during a recession, 
your income is about 15% low. Your lifetime income is about 15% lower than otherwise. So, you know, again, these things can last a long, long time. And so, you know, I think we should really be careful and, and you know, try to look at those individuals and see how we can help them get the human capital, you know, that they need to, you know, to, to succeed. And in terms of education, you know, are there any are there any ways for us to catch up for those two years for the kids? You know, how do you have take a family who has two working parents? Kids are are you know latchkey kids from my generation, right? You're home alone a lot. How, how do they catch up? Yeah, I, have, I have a lot of ideas that you know people probably you know beat me up, but you know. That's okay. This is free speech on our radio show, Peter. <laughs> no, when yeah. I was a kid, no, when I was a kid, it was like you know. A month of summer was great. And then it's like, now what the hell am I going to do? So, you know, how about just for the next few years, just have summer one month. Get the kids two more, three more months, you know, during the year of education. And, you know, I, I think that would be, you know, unpopular, of course. But but I think that, you know, without getting that education, they fall behind. But by the way, are you aware that there are a lot of teachers in unions? <laughs> I am. I am. I'm not going there. <laughs> Don't bait them, Neil. Don't bait them. <laughs> so in terms of, um, you know, I wanted to ask you about immigration because I, as a small business owner myself, I, when speaking with other business owners, we're all in the same boat of having very few candidates to fill the roles that we're looking to hire for. And I keep racking my head to try to, my brain to figure out where did all of these people go? Now, do you think it's from the fact that during the pandemic, there was no immigration whatsoever? Is that why we're having such a, a, a difficult time in finding um, employees? Or is it Generation Z and or the older, I mean, the younger millennials? What's yeah. going on? Why, why are people struggling to find employees? Yeah, I don't think we have a real answer. I think immigration was one during the pandemic. But, you know, I think as you probably are aware that, when the U.S. is doing well, relatively speaking, we get more immigration. When the U.S. is doing not so well, not so much immigration. So, you know, the economy has some things to do with it. But, you know, going in the pandemic, you know, a lot of individuals were getting paid to stay home more than they were making when they were at work. And we seem to not like that. But, no, we told them to stay home where right? we wanted them to stay home. So we kind of had to do that. Having said that, you know, maybe this could be kind of a silver lining in the sense that, Maybe a lot of these people were like, you know, I was kind of stuck in a dead end job. And if it weren't for the pandemic, I'd probably still be in that dead end job. Now, this extra unemployment insurance forcing me away from work, maybe it's given me time to retool a little bit, maybe to search a little bit differently to get a, a job that I might match better. You know, so, you know, that's my view of my optimistic view that, you know, what's going on right now is that people have decided they can wait and find a much better job. Um, so if that's the case, you know, we should see better matches coming up in the future, um, meaning higher wage growth and things like that. Now, is that a, do I, how real is that? I don't know. I mean, I haven't, we don't really have the data yet to really examine that, but, but, you know, that would be my hope. And as you know, if you want to find somebody and you haven't found anybody, offer higher wages. I mean, <laughs> you know, so, and you can hire somebody. So, you know, I think there's right now a mismatch you know, in, in sort of job qualifications and what people want to do. Now, given that the millennials are the largest generation at this point, you know, everyone, they've actually now usurped baby boomers as the largest generation. Do you think that that will help the, um, the Social Security Trust Fund in terms of getting us to a more solvency, a place of solvency for it? Or do you I think mean, that's certainly gonna, no, that's certainly going to help. But um, and by the way, they will also have the most kids of all time. Right. True. <laughs> so. Uh, so, yeah, you know, that's going to help. You know, on the other hand, you know, we're at a hundred and ten percent debt to GDP ratio. And so getting that paid back is, is going to be at a strain again on future generations. So even though that they're going to help with the Social Security part, the problem is in order to get it close to a balanced budget, we're going to have to tax them plenty. So you could expect to see much higher taxes for those generations in the future. You are listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. 
Unity Shop. We're here all year long, helping thousands of hardworking families get back on their feet, back to self-sufficiency. And we couldn't do it without you. Give your financial support or just a little of your time and find out how good it feels to be part of a healthier, more vibrant community. Find out more about the incredible services that Unity Shop provides all year long at unityshop.org. Hi, I'm Kelly Clarkson, and I've toured the country dozens of times, and there's one thing every state has in common. Childhood hunger. The sad truth is that 17 million kids don't know where their next meal is coming from, or if it's even coming at all. Yet there are billions of pounds of surplus food around the country at farms and warehouses that could help end this injustice. But all that food is useless if it doesn't get where it needs to go. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to hungry kids before it goes to waste. But they can't do it without your help. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank. Find out how at feedingamerica.org. Together we can solve hunger. Together we're Feeding America. To help solve hunger in your community and to find your local food bank, visit feedingamerica.org. That's feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology. Mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. So, Peter, you know, let's talk a little bit about the Fed and their very aggressive raising of the interest rates last year. How do you think that that's affected not only the banking situation that we're seeing right now, which I think obviously contributed to it, but in general, the overall economy? Yeah, I I think... So, so why did it happen? First of all, I think it happened because the Fed got behind the curve. I, I think that, you know, once the Fed loses some credibility, it's kind of hard to get it back. And, you know, so what happened, you know, when during the pandemic, you might go back and look at some of the responses from the Federal Reserve when they were keeping interest rates at zero. You know, they kept saying because of supply chain issues, this is transitory. And it's going to go away and inflation is going to just go down, you know, to where it was before and blah, blah, blah. Um, I have no I have no idea how long you could say things are transitory, you know, <laughs> <laughs> before it's not. And then I think they realize that. And then it's like, OK, we've let it get out of control. And I think they were really trying hard not to go back to the late 70s and see 15 percent inflation rates and 18 percent mortgages and things like that. So I I think what they said was, you know, look, we're going to be aggressive. We told people from the outset, we're going to be aggressive. We're going to raise it, you know, hard and fast, uh, which they did. Um, Now, of course, what that does is, you know, that does start to, you know, to limit, you know, borrowing and lending and those kind of things. And it's certainly going to hurt hurt banks. It's certainly going to hurt people who are, you know, holding long term treasuries, um, those kind of things. There's no doubt about it. The value of those assets fall. but until they got their credibility back, I think that, that they they just had to do that. And I think they did the right thing. The problem is I think they could have done it earlier with less pain. And, you know, I, I can't help but to think back to November of last year when all the economists were calling for, you know, Europe was going to be in a world of hurt. The U.S. is there's no way the Fed's going to get a soft landing. We're going into a deep recession, you know, so on and so forth. And then when it turned out, what actually happened was Europe was actually growing more than we are. And both of the both of neither of our economies are in a a great recession right now. Why do you think economists get it wrong so often? That's really mean. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, No, you know, I run this economic forecast project and I I started um, and I took over the forecast project like 10 years ago. You know, I got out on stage at the Granada Theater and I said, you know, it's really a, an honor to take over the economic forecast project. The problem is I don't forecast. And I could see that my directors, board of directors in the front row, like going, oh, my God, what have we done hiring this guy? You know, I, I mean, and the reason I say that is I don't forecast because I don't want to be wrong 50 percent of the time. And 
I think a lot of those forecasts out there were, you know, people just, you know, they, they were going to be wrong. Now, we didn't know they were going to be wrong at the outset, but they're making a guess. Like I said, no one knows when a recession is. I can't tell you what day a recession is going to occur. You know, so those things are super, super hard to to forecast. And so I think, you know, what I worry about now, by the way, is something you were saying before, Diane, that um, if everybody's thinking there's going to be a recession, we get the self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, it's like, oh, things are going to be bad. So you cut back on your spending. Neil doesn't go out to dinner so often. You know, jobs start to fall and and then consumers cut back and, you know, we, we kind of go into a recession. So, you know, I think that the economy is strong and, you know, these bank failures, I mean, that's a whole other issue about, you know, should they bail out everybody? And, you know, you know, one could say that the, the, the directors and the, and the CEO of, of Silicon Valley Bank were super clever. If they knew that they were going to be bailed out 100%, you know, so why not take, have your efforts in lobbying and all kinds of different things? And then basically, if you know you're going to get bailed out, you can play this risky game. The problem is, you know, are we going to, what are we going to see going forward? Well, or you look at like First Republic, for instance, why are they getting hit, hit so hard given they're in a t completely different business than Silicon Valley Bank? Right, right. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things that if you, if you see that, you know, there's a possibility of this bank not not doing so well. Credit Suisse is another one. Mm -hmm. You know, people knew months and months ago that um, there were some rumors that they were heading toward bankruptcy and they had a huge withdrawal. You know, again, sophisticated investors just start taking their money out. And, you know, it, we have to backstop it. But I never understood. Do you bail out Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers? You know, and right. so, are those decisions made? Well, those are tough decisions, you know, and and, you know, that goes back to, you know, the Fed should not be talking to the Treasury. Mm, OK, you know, so. Well, they, an independent they, central bank is super, super important. And, you know, the Fed's job is basically inflation. And, you know, so I think once the, if the Fed starts, if you go back to 1929, by the way, and you look at some of the Fed's reactions, they were really worried about the stock market. It's not the Fed's job to worry about the stock market. And so the Fed did a bunch of things in 1929 that actually made things worse. Uh, they made tons of mistakes. Um, they were just looking at the wrong things. So I think having an independent central bank that looks at inflation, um, you know, and, and ours is a dual mandate, inflation and employment, but many other central banks aren't that. They're just, you know, purely about inflation. Yeah, but isn't the, the mandate for our for the our Fed not just inflation, but also full employment? I mean, isn't that yeah, part that's of the their dual mandate. mandate? Exactly, that's the dual mandate. So that so when that you say that they were uh, too aggressive with uh, the stock market, you know, the stock market is 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 the way you raise capital to continue to have growth, which means you're going to have employment. So you know, were they really philo philosophically wrong in in worrying about the stock market in 1929? No, I, th I think it's the same kind of thing. I, I think it's, you know, if I know that um, if things go bad, the Fed's going to bail me out, you know, I'll, we'll t everybody's going to take more risk. And so I, I think that, you know, people have to be aware that, that sometimes things are going to fail. And, you know, you know, do we bail out the crypto companies that are going that are going under, you know, so, you know, where do you stop? So I, I think, what, you know, what the Fed cared about you know, and the treasury is really systemic risk. Right, that contagion of taking out the whole- Contagion effect. But, but what's interesting is in Credit Suisse today, 100% um, of the bond value of their bonds went to zero. Yeah. Uh, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, all of the senior people lost all their stock value. So it's not as if they did very well for themselves. Uh, they, they did pay a price. Um, the stock, the stockholders, they pay the price. I mean, but my point is that, you know, if you want to go ahead and take big risks, sometimes you're going to pay the price. And, you know, what they were doing, in my view, was pretty risky. I mean, and it wasn't risk that was like a, you know, a, a black swan event. This was, you could see it. Well, it was self-inflicted. It was self-inflicted. So, you know, 
if, if you want to do that and take the risk, then, you know, you kind of have to, the, the, the stockholders kind of have to take it, you know, um, that, that they had a risk, they were going to make some money, they lost out. So. Now, can the Treasury actually pick and choose which banks they're going to backstop the um, depositors with? Because, you know, it, it kind of feels like now if they're going to bail out the depositors of Silicon Valley Bank, right. that any bank that finds themselves in this situation, they're also going to have to backstop those depositors as well. And yeah. at what point does this end? It doesn't. In that case, it's not going to end. Every bank is going to take too much risk and they're going to have to bail out more and more banks. There, there, there's no doubt about it. You know, we could modify it. We could do something like narrow type of, uh, of depositing, right? It could be like for runnable deposits, you know, you have to invest those in short-term treasuries, you know, and reserves. For longer ones, you can do CDs and other things. So you can kind of make banks, you know, do that on their own. I mean, you could force them to do that. That's more regulation, of course. Um, but, you know, those are all ways that, that can can stop some of this type of mismatch that, that we saw. And do you you're, think listen, we- you're, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9. And believe it or not, we'll be right back with our final segment. What defines our community? Is it the people? The businesses? Is it the ranches, vineyards, and farms? We think it's all of those. And we're committed to helping our communities thrive. Homeowners existing and new, businesses looking to grow or bring up the next generation, our regional agriculture managing their seasons, crops, and livestock. We're American Riviera Bank, and we invest in our communities, in you. Hi, I'm Jenny Garth. Heart disease is something I live with every day. It runs in my family, and it took my dad's life. So I'm choosing to speak up, and so can you. Tell people how it's the number one killer of women. Tell them one woman dies every minute from it, and that 80% of cardiac events in women may be prevented if you make the right choices today. Join American Heart Association's Go Red for Women. Speak up to save lives at GoRedForWomen.org. You've seen the paintings, the Thanksgiving turkey being served at grandma's, the wise police officer talking a young boy out of running away from home. Norman Rockwell inspired the best. Inspiration. Pass it on. From the Foundation for a Better Life at values.com. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So before I ask you about Santa Barbara real estate, because I, I always get told that's what I need to ask you about on the on the show, is I, I do need to ask you one more question about what's going on in terms of regulation and whether or not you do think more regulation will come out of what's ha- what we've seen happen. Yeah, I think it probably will. I mean, I, there's just you know, in these times, I mean, people start to worry, you know, about their money and what's going on. And I think there are many people in in, in Congress with, with lots of oversight that think that, you know, we shouldn't have every person monitor the bank. And I think the same is true for, you know, imagine we said that, you know, anybody can be a doctor, you don't have to get a license. You know, do we really want everybody to go out and find out who this person is that has, that has all the skills? We We don't, you know, so I think we do want to have the notion that we put our money somewhere, it's somehow safe, you know, so I, I, I get that. And I think probably people aren't feeling that way right now, just like they didn't after the, the Great Recession. And that's why you saw, you know, Dot Frank and a bunch of things, a bunch of things happen. Um, why were they not safe now? Well, you know, there's lots of things banks can do. And if you, if you don't force them to do mark to market, and I'm not saying they should, I mean, there's benefits to you know, holding to maturity, right? I mean, so it's it's hard to say, but I do think there'll probably be some increased uh, uh, regulatory stuff. And then as, as we're in our last segment, let's talk a little bit about Santa Barbara real estate because it is a topic that everyone loves here. Yes. So what the, with the rates going up, do you see housing prices falling despite the fact that we have incredibly low inventory? I mean, they have started to fall a bit. 
there's, you know, they've fallen. Um, I think activity has started to pick up a little bit lately. Um, so, you know, it, housing prices can't grow at 20% a year, which they were during the pandemic. I mean, in many, many places. And, you know, that's just not sustainable. And so, you know, the people that were putting up their housing, their houses for sale during the pandemic, I mean, I think you probably know there were like 30 people in line, things were going for 50% over asking. Um, and I think it tended to get a lot of people mis it's a, like a bubble, right? It was kind of a bubbly environment where, where it was like, hey, I'll put my house on the market, I'll ask a whole bunch. If I get it, you know, fantastic. Um, so I, I think there was a lot of that, but I think the slowdown in the housing sector, partly because of mortgage rates, partly because, you know, we, we, we did have a huge growth in, in, in demand and we're going to see that for a while, probably, you know, so. And what effect do you think, um, you know, the tightening of work from home policies are having, and do you think that will contribute to housing prices continuing to fall? Yeah, you know, it's to me, that's the most fascinating thing of all this, right? What's going to happen with this remote work stuff? Um, mm -hmm. And people are all over the map on this. You know, many, many companies are like, we want the culture. People need to be in the office to have this culture. On the other hand, there's 125 million square feet of vacant office in New York. 125 million square feet. Um, Santa Barbara, by the way, has 11 million square feet total. <laughs> you know, so this is you know, an incredible amount of, of vacant office space. And, you know, what to do with that is is going to be very difficult. Um, and, you know, the solution is not convert the office space to residential. That's massively expensive, you know, trying to get water into each unit and that kind of stuff. So, you know, it, it, as it plays out, you know, I think more and more people are going to go back to work. Not the same way. You know, it might be three days a week. It might be something different. But certainly I don't think we're going to see as many places having five days, you know, uh, nine to five. And, and just to be clear, when you talk about the commercial real estate market, we have to bring it back to the whole subject that we've been discussing, which is the financial markets, because all of these properties were built with debt. And yeah. so you've got this, you know, contagion no one's talking about. What if there's a real collapse of the commercial real estate market? What happens to banks? What happens to securitized mortgages? Uh, there's a you know a, a potential time bomb sitting out there. That's a really good point, Neil. I don't know. I forget the number now, but I just had a little event with Mary Ricks, who's at Kennedy Wilson, and she gave us a number about how much of that was coming due over the next five five years, and it's a big number. So you're right. Yeah. So, Peter, thank you so much uh, for being our best guest. We hope to have you on again as often as we can. Uh, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week. Yeah.